Welcome to The Joe Cohen Show. Join me as I share my experience with biohacking and invite top health experts to explore the latest technology, supplements, research, and resources for optimizing your body and brain. Hey, everyone. I am very glad to have on Jeffrey Gladden. He is an interventional cardiologist with a passion to bring cutting-edge services to outlying areas. He pivoted to longevity medicine from cardiology after facing his own mortality at the age of 50. He cracked the code for himself and came to new realizations and questions that drove him to a new consuming passion, helping others turn back the clock and stay young to lead their best and most impactful lives. Dr. Gladden is now releasing his first book, Making 100 the New 30. In my own words, Dr. Gladden was quite interesting. I was looking up some information about him. And it's always interesting when someone goes from a conventional field, such as cardiology, to something like longevity. And he had his own very interesting story that interested in me. So he's a board certified, are you board certified cardiologist? Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So you're board certified cardiologist and you're doing your conventional cardiology for a whole bunch of years. And then you have a health challenge and you come to realize that, wait a second, conventional medicine is not serving you the way that you would like it to serve you. And even maybe just a whole bunch of conventional ideas might not be exactly as you thought, which is kind of the way that a lot of people get into it, including myself. You have some kind of problem. It's not solved in a conventional way very well. And you think that, hey, there's a much better way to do these things than a cookie cutter approach and, and the way that we're doing it now. So take us through that journey. And, and so what were some of the things that you thought were wrong with the system? What made you take that U-turn? Yeah. So, you know, I loved cardiology. I mean, I, I really loved being an interventional cardiologist. And one of the things I loved about it was that we were... <laughs> constantly have the opportunity to innovate in the way that we treated situations for people. And one of the things I learned from the cardiology practice was that if I could bring a higher level of precision to a person, let's say who was having a heart attack or having trouble with a bad artery or something that we were working to, to open back up for them, then I could always get a better result. And so I was, I've always been very innovative in that regard and, and also got involved with medical device companies, starting them and things like that and co-founding a heart hospital and building my own heart group and these kinds of activities. So I had a lot going on and I was very passionate about what I did. But in my, in my early fifties, as you mentioned, I got sick. I started putting on weight. I was like, you know, I'd always, I played soccer in college. I could run all day, played basketball. I've always been athletic and loved that was snowboarding, mountain biking, things like that. And all of a sudden I'm putting on weight around the middle and I'd started working out in my forties. I think most of us leverage our health for the sake of building our businesses. And I had done the same thing. And I, I went for a run in my forties that I could run two blocks and I had to stop. And I thought, wow, this is really out of control. So at that point I started exercising, eating better. And three months later I could run three miles and everything came back in. But then in my fifties, I got hit again. And all of a sudden I'm putting on this weight. I'm, I'm actually fatigued all the time. It's hard for me to get out of bed. And I'm noticing that when I come under stress and I was involved with many projects that I would start to get depressed. And I was also mm -hmm. developing some brain fog and I, my dad died with dementia. So 
this was all very concerning to me. I was used to my kids not being able to keep up with me, used to be able to, you know, be able to outwork anybody around me. And now all of a sudden I was not feeling well. So I went and I got tested with conventional testing that you pointed out. And and what I was told was that, you know, everything checks out for your age. You're just getting older. Why don't you take an antidepressant? And that was one of the most existential moments in my life. It was like, are you kidding me? This is it. I've, I've reached the zenith of my life and it's just going to be downhill from here. I mean, that's really what I'm being told. I'm getting older, taking antidepressant. And so I, I didn't accept that. I refused to accept it. And I threw myself at that point into functional medicine, integrative medicine, age management medicine. And then two and a half years later, cracked the code for myself. And in that process, to your, to your point about an enlightenment or awakening, I, I, I became enlightened to the fact that the conventional medicine that I'd been taught and trained in had a very narrow view of the world and that there was a tremendous amount of information and actionable and functional information out there that was actually incredibly helpful that we were never taught, never, you know, never brought to our attention, et cetera. And we weren't looking for it. And so I realized that I'd been practicing sick care, not health care. And I realized that I'd gotten married to a set of answers that I'd been told, this is how you go about things. So the, the real enlightenment for me was to reject both those premises. It's like, no, I want to not be married to a set of answers. I want to be married to a set of questions or even better be married to the problem, which is how do we actually crack the code on aging? And from there, once I started to feel great again, I had subclinical hypothyroidism. And once I, you know, which doesn't show up in blood work, I only picked it up with biometric testing. Once I got on the right combination of active thyroid T3 and inactive thyroid T4, you know, it's like the light came back on. And then genetically, my brain does not convert inactive thyroid to active thyroid very efficiently either. I have a significant reduction in my brain's ability to do that. So getting the right thyroid was massive for me. And then did you, how do you know that you have the limited ability? Is that a genetic predisposition that you DIO2. Took? It's a DIO2 gene. Right, guys probably test for it. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. We, we, and, we test for 83 million variants. So that's definitely one of them. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah. And so, you know, I was hormonally depleted. My testosterone levels were going down. DHEA, this is a common thing in men. Men go through andropause. Women go through menopause, as you know. And so getting some supplementation of hormones back in that arena made a big difference. I lost 20 pounds of fat, put on 10 pounds of muscle. And then the, the anxiety and depression was a function of my methylation cycle, which are also genes that you test for. And once I got on the right combination of supplements for that and a few others that really seemed to be helpful for me, you know, it was like, okay, I'm back. I'm clear. I'm good. I, you know, I can do whatever I want. And, and at that point it wasn't like, okay, this is terrific. I want to go back to practicing cardiology. It was like, you know, there are a lot of people suffering out here the same way that I did with this whole aging process. I want to devote the rest of my life to actually having an impact in this area. And so that's when I kind of, you know, did some base jumping and basically flew out of cardiology into what I'm doing today. Interesting. So the way I see it, the, there's two kinds of things that you ran into with the conventional system. If I had to narrow it down, one is treating disease, very specific diseases versus optimizing the body. So there were a bunch of things that were wrong with you that let's say you're a hypothyroidism. They didn't car categorize that as a disease, right? But it was a suboptimal state in the body. It existed. They, 
you know, conventional medicine, looking at TSH, which is how we were all trained, right? I was trained this way. Didn't even pick up that I had the problem. And then they didn't check your free or total T3, you're saying. Yeah. But even if they had, they wouldn't have picked up the DIO2 issue. And they were basing most of their things just on TSH and T3 and so T4. What was your, right. So what was your total and free T3, if you remember when I don't, you had I don't this remember, issue? I don't remember the labs. This was, you know, a long time ago, 15 years so, but was it normal? And you're saying my that you're... Was in a normal, my TSH was in a normal range, but as I recall, it was close to three and a half or something. If you're basically trying to manage thyroid by looking at free T3 and free T4, that's another quagmire, and that's another place you'll get lost because there are a lot of things that will change those levels. And what we've really found to be the most helpful thing is doing biometric testing because in essence, the body doesn't lie. The blood work can be misleading, but the body doesn't lie. So when you're doing biometric testing and you're biometric testing and you're measuring things like resting metabolic rate or reflex reaction times or things like this, you can get a true read on where somebody's at. So we've really, we like to do the lab work. We do extensive lab work on thyroid because we want to see where people are, but we, we always do resting metabolic rates now to actually see what is the metabolic set point for the body, because that's a much better indicator of where thyroid is at from a functional standpoint. And really well, that's what we mm -hmm. care about is function. We don't care about numbers. So that's how we've evolved into that. Right. So in your position, you think conventional medicine is kind of two steps off. Number one is they're only testing TSH rather than testing T4, T3, total T3 and free T3 and, and maybe even reverse T3. I'm not sure what you think yeah, about that, T3. but is important as well. Okay. And, and by the way, I've been testing my total T total and free T3 for 10 years because I knew that TSH wasn't the most important metric. Yes. I mean, and it, that's, it, that's it wise on your part. I would, yeah. That's wise on your part. I would encourage you to get a resting metabolic rate. If you're curious about your thyroid and where it's set. What kind of test is that? Like where do, what, what, what is it? What's the name of that test? It's called a resting metabolic rate. That's the name of the test. It's done by using something called a metabolic cart, which is basically a computer. And it's linked up to a face mask that you wear. And the face mask is essentially measuring how much carbon dioxide you're expelling and how much oxygen you're taking in. And from that, you get really excellent information about not only where your metabolic rate is, but also what percentage of calories at a resting state you're or energy, let's say, you're getting from fat versus carbs. And that's a direct measure of mitochondrial function. And when we combine the metabolic measurements through VO2 max testing, like putting somebody on a bike and then having them pedal through exercise, we see that their, their burning of calories changes from fat to carbohydrates. And the rate at which that changes is also another big indicator of mitochondrial function. So let's, let me give you a perfect example. So a perfect example, you're sitting there and your body's in a resting state and 90% of your calories, greater than 80% of your calories are coming from fat right now. If we put you on a treadmill or a bike or something like that, and we run and we push you through a protocol that pushes you up to maximum exercise, right? At that maximum exercise, you're burning hundred percent carbs, hundred percent carbs. We all switch to hundred percent carbs. And the reason we do that is we get two more ATP from carbs than we do from fat. So when you're all in on needing every ounce of energy, your body's going to burn carbs. Now, 
to get, you've heard of a fat burning zone, right? So a fat burning zone is a heart rate below which you convert from predominantly fat to carbs. And that's why it's called a fat burning target zone. But the, the rate of change going from rest, and let's say you're going from 90% burning fat, at what rate do you jump up to burning 100% carbs? If you jump up to burning a lot of carbs early in the exercise at fairly low heart rates, let's say 110 or 120, and you're not all the way up to your maximum, which would for you would probably be around 170, maybe 180, something like that, then that's an indication that, you're, that your mitochondria are not working well. And that's a, that's a big tip off. And with the resting metabolic rate, we also get a feel for where you fall in a bell-shaped curve. You know, are you, are you on the low end of normal, the high end of normal? And so you can dial in somebody's thyroid to put them in the place where they're going to function best. So how, I did a VO2 max test, right? And how does that relate to a resting metabolic rate test? Well, they're both done with a mass. They're both done with a metabolic cart. And... They're related because you can think of the resting metabolic rate as being, if you were just sitting in a chair for 20 minutes and we just measured your breathing, that would be you at rest. That's, and then with VO2 max, we're basically looking at how does your me metabolism change as you exercise? And from that, we can calculate VO2 max, which is a surrogate marker for cardiac output. So VO2 max is really giving you an indication of how much, how much blood is your heart able to pump? Okay. And that can be mm -hmm. calculated from the metabolic data. So I, I also heard that it's, it's uh, the VO2 max is also looking at how much oxygen your mitochondria, I mean, how well your, your muscle right. mitochondria work. That's right. right. It's also, it is also a function of mitochondria and we see the mitochondrial abilities in that slope of the curve when we see the transition from fat burning to carb burning we get a good look at the health of the mitochondria but ultimately at the end of the day the mitochondria are going to make energy for you unless you have a mitochondrial disease and so the amount of oxygen that you can consume starts to equate to the amount of blood that you're able to pump and the amount of mm -hmm. blood that you're able to pump is your is your vo2 max in a sense it's it's they're they're interrelated. We're making a couple of assumptions here. You know, the hemoglobin levels are normal, that the extraction process is, is intact, pulling the oxygen from the hemoglobin into the cells, into the mitochondria. But if those are if those are if we have no reason to think that those are disturbed in some way, then the amount of oxygen extracted relates directly to how much blood your heart's able to pump. And that's a very, very strong indicator of of longevity. People with high VO2 maxes live longer, have less heart disease, less dementia, less cancer, less everything. And so it's one of the most important metrics that people can have measured if they're thinking about cardiovascular health as VO2 max. I would agree with that. That's why I got it measured as well. They, they told me that my VO2 max was the highest that they tested in that clinic. I think they had like 2,000 people. Mm -hmm. So that was, That's I think, here. Reassuring. Do you remember what it was? Was it on a bike or a treadmill or? It was on a, it was on a bike. I had yeah. the mask and may have been 65. Okay. That's very high. And the thing you yeah. should also know is that when you're on the bike, your VO2 max on the bike is only 85% of what it would be on a treadmill. So if you mm -hmm. want to actually correct it for what your true VO max would, would be, if it was 65, you divide it by 0 0.85 and that would give you the, your, your real VO2 max, so to speak, on a treadmill. We use right. the bike because it's safer than the treadmill. Nobody flies off the back of a bike, right? right. So 
right? So, so that's why the bike is used for safety reasons. But just so you understand, that conversion is that's a well documented conversion. So, interesting. Yeah. So that yeah, I, I got a paper. They showed that for each age group because it goes down as you get older. It does, and this is one of the things that we measure at Cladden Longevity for every every client is VO two max at least a couple times a year. And we have people that are functioning that their cardiovascular systems are decades younger than their chronological age. And that's what we're shooting. Mm -hmm. Right. So what was the highest VO2 max you guys tested? We've had people in the 60s. We've had people in the 60s, the low 60s. Those would be the low highest. Low 60s. Interesting. Yeah. So it is how many it's people did you test? You know, we've tested, oh, I'm sure we've done, I'm sure we've done thousands of tests at this point in time. So mm -hmm. yeah, having 65 is great. You know, the highest ever recorded, if you're interested in that, was a, for a man, I think was in a Scandinavian cross-country skier. And for a female, I think it was 90 or 91. Oh, wow. Um, in a cross-country skier. So just so people have a frame of reference. But 65 is very high. I mean, you know, you'd be, you could be an elite cyclist. You could be an elite distance runner with those kinds of numbers. You know, there are other things to go into being able to be an elite runner or cyclist. Right. But, but you would have the, the cardiovascular capacity for that kind of activity. You know, if you, if you, if you want to say, well, what's a Husky, right? What's a, what's a Husky? I think theirs is over 200, like 220. something. Oh, wow. Like so this is why, you know, you're not going to outrun a Husky, but. But, you know, 65 is great. And, you know, the other thing is that people want to optimize their VO2 max, and which is a very admirable thing. And what we have found is that there's a lot written about optimizing VO2 max. Well, if you do interval training, that's the way to do it, right? If you do interval training, you'll boost your VO2 max. Or, you know, we've had people that come in and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm getting my cardio. I'm doing Orange Theory now. Or my trainer has me, you know, run for 10 minutes before we lift and then 10 minutes after we lift. And it's like, okay, great. Well, let's measure it. And in those cases, everybody's VO2 max goes down. Mm -hmm. Everybody's goes down. Right. And it's, I mean, we're not, we're not biased in any way, except having them have good VO2 maxes. And what we've learned is that it takes a combination of both sustained cardio, where you go out and you push yourself for 45 minutes or an hour, or by push yourself, I mean, go for a run or, or cycle. And then you have to do interval training on top of that. So the cake, if you will, that you're baking is protracted cardio, like Kipchoge, right? The guy that, that broke the two-hour barrier in that staged race in Austria for the marathon. You know, he's, he's one of the world's leading marathoners. How do they train? Well, they go out and they run for five hours at a really slow pace, like eight or nine-minute miles, right? And yet when they're running those marathons, they're running like 4.30 pace. And then they do tempo runs where they're running that fast or faster. And it's a combination of the two. They're building the base. And then they're layering on the other stuff. So if people are listening to this and you'd like to build your VO2 max, you really need to incorporate both of those elements. And it's a very worthy goal. So we recommend doing, you know, more protraction cardio three days a week and then two days a week doing interval training, which can be for like, you know, 20 minutes or that kind of, I just finished an interval training session right now. Interval, interval training means like basically weightlifting. No, no. Interval training is, you. well, to your point, you can do interval training with weights, but the kind of interval training that I'm talking about is cardiovascular. Short sprints. Right. So I did it on a machine called a VASPER, V-A-S-P-E-R, that uses blood flow restriction. So I'm sitting in a device, moving my arms back and forth, my feet back and forth, and I have blood pressure cuffs, if you will, on my legs and my arms, constricting the muscles. So mm -hmm. it's harder for blood to get in and out of the muscles, which increases the work of the exercise. And then I'm 
I warm up for four minutes and then I sprint for 30 seconds or a minute or 45 minutes or 45 seconds. And then I take a breather for 90 seconds and I do it again. And today I was doing it with something called Live O2, where we're fluctuating the concentration of oxygen while I'm doing this. So I'm being oxygen deprived during some of the sprints and then I'm getting higher than normal concentrations of oxygen at other times. This is a new thing that we're that we're experimenting with to see if we can improve VO2 max even further, hacking into it this way. But it really, you know, we, we've done this so much and we've seen this over and over again over the last, you know, 12 years or so that we've been testing this. And um, really, if people are serious about their VO2 max, do that protracted cardio and then do the interval training on top of it. So you're making me more motivated here. So I, I really, I actually wasn't, even though I was very into health, I wasn't working out in any serious way before I would say like seven months ago, mm. more meaning like I wasn't making, paying a lot of attention to it. Like every day mm. I need to work out or, or do exercise, not necessarily work out, but exercise. And so I, I changed a bunch of things. For example, I always run up the stairs, okay. up this up or down the stairs. I always take my bike whenever I can. So, mm -hmm. you know, or walk, you know, I, I more likely to play volleyball. I started lifting some weights, do push-ups. So that's kind of interval training as well, doing like 90 push-ups or something like that until exhaustion. Sort of. It's not really, we wouldn't consider it cardio interval training. You do get your heart rate up for sure. But it's just when people have come to us and said, well, this is the kind of cardio training I'm doing, it doesn't translate into their VO2 max. That's what we've Interesting. seen over and over, over Okay. Again. But I think I need to incorporate, because I actually wasn't doing this in terms of like, I think I need to incorporate sprints. So quick sprints, stop for a minute, sprint, right. stop. Okay. So I wanted to emphasize how important VO2 max is just in the general scheme of things in terms of longevity, disease. In terms of longevity, it seems to me, based on what I've read, that VO2 max is the number one longevity metric out of anything else. Would you agree with that? Well, let, let's just take a step back from that. So the real question that you're asking is, and you didn't state it this way, but this is how I'm going to reframe it, is you're really asking, how old am I? And so we're using VO2 max as a marker for how old is our cardiovascular system. And then the extrapolation from what you said would be that it's a, it's a good metric to give you an overall sense of health. I will say this, that what we've discovered in our practice is that we are all a mosaic of ages. In other words, you have a chronological age, you have a VO2 max age, which gives you a cardiovascular age, but you also have a carotid age in terms of what's the thickness of your artery. You also have how long are your telomeres, a telomeric age, you have a DNA methylation age, you have, you know, a what's the senescent cell burden that you have in your body? What's the age of your bones based on bone density? What's your muscle mass? What's the age of your muscle mass? You know, what's the age of your, of your lung function and on and on and on. What's the age of your brain? And so your kidneys, I love to say that as well, by the way, I'm, I'm in full agreement. I keep on, every time people ask me about, oh, what's your biological age? I'm like, I don't really believe in that because it's like, there's so many metrics of biological age, you know, testosterone is a measure of biological age, right? It's something that goes down That's over right. time. Anything That's that right. goes down over time is a metric of biological age. That's right. You're absolutely right. And I think it's wise of you to, to have come to that conclusion because there was a lot of people 
I think, out there misleading other people by saying, if you just get a DNA methylation age, you know, this is going to be your, this is your quote unquote biological age. And I see, and there are other algorithms out there that people can use too, right? Where you can get some fairly routine blood work done and they'll do, run it through an algorithm, say, well, this is your biological age. And I think it does a tremendous disservice to people because all of a sudden it's like, okay, I'm chronologically, let's say I'm 56 or so, so I'm not talking about me, but somebody comes in and says I'm 56 and my, my quote unquote biological age is 50. So I'm good. I'm doing really good. And yet what we find is that when we test other things, it's like, well, your telomeres make you 70 years old, right? Or your, your cardiovascular fitness is out of a 65-year-old. So what we find out is that really people are only as young as their oldest age, right? That's the thing that's going to take you out. Do you want to hear about the one health hack that is sure to change your life? Okay, here it is. Subscribing to this podcast. 67% of listeners aren't following the show, so please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, but also investing in yourself and your health journey, all while helping to keep us ad-free. Click the subscribe button now and enjoy the rest of the episode. I like to say that one of the best biological age tests are your blood is your blood pressure, right? If you have, if you have high blood pressure, that's, it's something that gets worse as you age. And it's one of the most important things out there, right? If you have high blood pressure, then yes. that's going to increase your risk for tons of diseases. That's right. And it's something very simple to check for. It's very simple to check for. And we're doing something really interesting with blood pressure now. We're not only checking brachial blood pressure, but we're using a device that enables us to measure central blood pressure in the aorta from the cuff mm -hmm. in the arm. And then also give us an idea of how stiff the arteries are. And it's arterial stiffness, to your point, that is a big problem when it comes to high blood pressure. And arterial stiffness is caused from two things. One is senescent cell formation in the arterial wall. Senescent cells are these zombie cells that you've heard about or read about. That basically, Cells become senescent when they either have DNA damage or their telomeres get short or proteins aren't folding properly or, you know, some of the other hallmarks of aging are turning up there and those cells basically get shut down. They enlarge and they start to stiffen the artery. And so this is where drugs like rapamycin to decrease senescent cell formation or using things like dasatinib and quercetin or quercetin or things that can actually, or FOXO4-DRI is a peptide or things that can prune these senescent cells from the body become interesting. Why do you think, I spoke to a scientist that measured, that, that researched Fisodin and Quercetin. Oh, well, it definitely, I, well, he, he was more focusing on rapamycin. He said that was very significant for longevity. But when he, he, he spoke about Fisodin, I believe, and Quercetin, and he wasn't so into a lot of these other things. He said they didn't really extend lifespan. In, well, in it's, yes, it's a good point that you're making. So the idea of preventing senescent cell formation in the arteries and elsewhere in your body is a good strategy for longevity and high levels of function. Rapamycin is a good way to do that because it, it blocks pathways. I won't get into the biochemistry, but it blocks the pathways that actually lead to growth and cell division and things like that, which correlate with aging and higher risk of cancer. So when you're, when you're basically trying to 
uh, stop that process. This is where things like fasting comes in and activating the other side of the equation with certain molecules like metformin or berberine or resveratrol or things like that, or sterostilbene to, to counteract that, which puts you more into a rejuvenation mode. <clears throat> the body likes to cycle in and out of growth phases and then rejuvenation phases. And so it's very important that the body do that. But when it comes to pruning these senescent cells, if we prune too many of them, they come back very quickly. And so using things like bisotin, which is effective at pruning some senescent cells, the combination to satinib and quercetin, and quercetin is effective. Dasatinib is a chemo drug. Quercetin alone does very little. Bisotin alone is equal to dasatinib and quercetin. FOXO4-DRI is a peptide that can prune senescent cells. But when you, when you do prune senescent cells, you want to do it in a delicate fashion. Biology is an economy of balance. It's not about, well, okay, we're going to push, push biology and we're going to prune every senescent cell from our body and then we'll live a long time. That's wrong. That's, that's really not the right way. Just like this is equally wrong to say, well, I'm going to be keto all the time. No, that's not what the body wants mm-hmm. to do. It wants to cycle between stages and, and phases. So, Right. That, I think that's quite important to understand. But let's kind of back up a little bit and just talk about rapamycin and senescent cells. Senescent cells are these cells that have been living for a certain amount of time and they, they kind of become zombie cells. They're there, but they're not functioning very well. And you get more of these senescent cells as you get older. Your body cannot rejuvenate the cells very well, and they kind of build up in various places and cause damage and, and yes, the, there's the a, various there's tissues and organs. That's right. And there's another element to that, which is that the senescent cells can become what are called secretory senescent cells or senescence-associated secretory phenotype, the acronym for which is SASP, S-A-S-P. And what that is telling us is that those senescent cells, which were sitting there dormant as zombie cells, get turned on to start secreting inflammatory cytokines into the environment. So now all of a sudden they're adding to the inflammation that's in the body. And inflammation is a major driver of the aging process. It's a result of the aging process and it accelerates the aging process. So it's both the chicken and the egg. And... And the real problem with inflammation is that it's increasing oxidative stress at a cellular level. So being able to manage oxidative stress, being able to manage inflammation, being able to manage senescent cell formation, these are all become linked together, so to speak. So, Right. And so rapamycin, the reason why we're talking about it, and, and it's very interesting that there's some people who listen to the podcast that aren't maybe, they might be somewhat beginners in health. Rapamycin is a drug that's been studied for many years already that in mice, in animals, in various animals, it extends the lifespan anywhere between 20 and 30%. Is that correct? It depends on how it's used. So just to take a step back from from that comment, rapamycin was developed really as an immunosuppressive drug and also as a chemotherapeutic agent for cancer. And if you take rapamycin every day, let's say you take two milligrams of rapamycin every day, you will suppress your immune system. So that's a side effect that you don't want to have. And yet, if you take rapamycin in a bolus scenario, which also interestingly enough is the way to prune senescent cells is a hit and run strategy where you give a senolytic and then you back off for two weeks and then you give it again and back off. That seems to work better. 
rapamycin's in the same camp. So a lot of people have evolved their strategies with rapamycin for end longevity to a strategy of taking six, eight, 10, 12 milligrams once every week or once every two weeks. Now the half-life of rapamycin is when you do four half-lives to get it out of the body, the half-life is about 70 hours, right? So it takes almost 10 days to get it out of your body. And so we're fans of dosing it every two to three weeks to give your body a, a, a period when it's not exposed to the drug at all, and then put it back in to get some of the benefit. We're in the process of measuring the efficacy of that strategy through some trials that we're running. But it's just important Mouth for trials people. or human trials? Human. Yeah. Human trials. Okay. And how would you measure the effic efficacy by the mortality rate? No, no, not by mortality rate. We can do it by surrogate markers for senescent cells. We can do it with surrogate markers for, you know, mTOR. We can do it with surrogate markers for things like, I'm going to throw out a lot of big words here that I don't, I don't want to get people lost. So what, what, what you can do is you can actually measure, well, well here, here's the question first. What does rapamycin do, right? Okay, how, how does it work? Well, it, it basically blocks something called mTOR. mTOR is essentially the anabolic side of the equation, right? So bodybuilders are all about boosting mTOR. So they're taking, they're taking IGF-1, they're taking growth hormone, they're taking testosterone. Why? Because it boosts mTOR. And mTOR and builds muscles, builds bones, builds things like that. It's, it's as builds protein, builds. protein. In, in as does protein. MTOR. That's right. As does Insulin, protein. Insulin, so carbs in some way as well. Well, calories, if we're in a calorie rich environment, mTOR is more likely to be turned on, but it's more sensitive to amino acids. So, so anyway, that's your build phase. So think of that as being on one side of a teeter-totter, okay? On the other side of the teeter-totter is something called AMPK. AMPK is not sensitive to amino acids. It's sensitive to energy levels in the cell. So when you go for a run, let's say you go run for 45 minutes or an hour and you burn up all your ATP. Now you have You've taken AMP back to ADP down to AMP. Now it's measuring AMP and it's activating the part of the cell that says, let's recycle stuff. Let's increase autophagy. Let's, let's make ourselves younger. Let's jettison the stuff we don't need. Let's lengthen the telomeres, right? And so it's actually the rejuvenation side of the equation. And so when people are all about the mTOR side of the equation all the time, they look good, but they die sooner right? More, they, they die sooner. All the data shows they die sooner and they, they got more a, muscle, but yeah, yeah. They have a big muscle, but they die sooner and they have more cancer. So really, again, economy of balance, you want to be fluctuating in or out of these. You don't want to be a 90 year old waif, but you don't want to be a, a 75 year old that's dead from cancer. So, so you really, it's cycling between these. So what does rapamycin do? Well, it blocks mTOR. And to your point, every study that's ever been done has shown that if you block mTOR, you live longer, but there's a downside too, because if somebody, so growth hormone activates mTOR too, but let's say you have mice that are genetically engineered not to have growth hormone. Well, they die really fast also. So the body needs growth hormone. It needs mTOR, right? It's there for a reason. It's not a bad thing. You just need it in moderation. And then you need to come back and activate AMPK, which you can do with fasting and saunas and, you know, exercise and, and things like that. So supplements, su supplements, yeah, certain supplements as we talked about, but we think that you really get the biggest bang for the buck when you, when you synchronize them, right? So when you're on rapamycin, well, let's really then 
work with the supplements that activate AMPK because now they're primed and ready Interesting. to go, you see? Okay. And then when you're activating mTOR, you know, you're, you're taking anabolic boosting things like peptides that might boost more growth hormone release, or you're using testosterone or you're doing things like that. Well, then let's not activate AMPK. Let's work on the other side of the equation, giving ourselves amino acids, giving us our, you know, things that will help us build and grow and be strong. And then we'll flip back to the other way, right? So now you're kind of oscillating between these two poles of rejuvenation. But what are we trying to measure exactly? Like really just muscle mass is coming down to meaning like, let's say for me, I have enough muscle mass. Do I need to be careful about all those, you know, I guess being careful about not activating AMPK when I'm weightlifting or whatever, something like that? No, it's not, there's nothing to be careful about. You can't get it wrong at that point. You know, it's not like it's wrong. What I was saying was simply that, you know, in people that are chronologically older than you, that there's a, there's a logic to, you know, if you're going to rejuvenate, let's rejuvenate, right? If you're going to build, let's build. That's all we're saying. In your particular situation, what's your chronological age now? 35. Okay. So at 35, you know, you don't really have issues with sarcopenia. You don't really have issues per se with testosterone depletion, you know, unless there's something else going on. You don't have a lot of the issues that say somebody in their 50s is starting to face. And here's the other big news. The other big news is that aging is not linear. It's actually exponential. We actually undergo aging in an exponential fashion. And even inside that exponential curve that aging is, there are times when you age a whole lot more. And so the first wave of aging happens and peaks at around age 34. So the fact that you're 35, you've actually, you actually have gone through the first, or you're part of the first peak of aging in your system. So it's a good, it would be a good time for you to measure things like, well, what are my telomere lengths? What's my DNA methylation look like? What's my bone density, my muscle mass? How am I holding up to this first wave of aging? And it's not, an, it's not a trivial wave that occurs and peaks around age 34 or 35. The next wave is at age 60. It's a smaller peak, but the biggest peak starts at 63 and peaks at 78. And there's 15 years in there where there's massive aging going on for people. And if they're not addressing the things that we're talking about, they age a lot. And we intuitively know that people age a lot more between say 60 and 70 or 70 and 80 than they do between, you know, 30 and 40. Right. And so there's a lot more loss of function. And, you know, at the end of life, you know, people can be in there, they can be 85 and they're out there playing golf and at 90, they're in a wheelchair, right? I mean, it's right. decline to, can be dramatic and they're suffering with all the things we're talking about, buildups of senescent cells, sarcopenia, loss of muscle mass, bone density, all these things. So anyway, it's important for the audience to understand you're playing an exponential game, not a linear game, and it comes in waves and you need to know where you are biologically related to those waves. And then you need to be able to measure what is my mosaic of ages, right? What, and, and currently we measure over 60 of those, right? And we're, and we're doing even more with transcriptomics and things. So these are the things that you really want to know. I'm a very big fan of measuring as much as possible that has scientific evidence to show that if you could get it in a better range, then there's a benefit for that, right? Uh, so I do measure a whole bunch of things, a lot of the things you mentioned, and I think it's critical because you, you want to know your baseline. You want to know how those things are changing over time. Yep. And I highly recommend that 
everybody get as many tests as possible. And that's why we also have a lab analysis feature in self-decode that you could upload these results and look at if they're in their optimal range and if not, how to get them there. Now, I think, you know, longevity is going through this whole longevity field is going through rejuvenation. It's almost impossible for me to speak to anybody these days without health problems, right? And, and people don't think of that they have health problems, but when you actually drill them, like, so you're tired, you know, like, yeah, sometimes, or, you know, sometimes I don't think that well, or, you know, I've got these random pains, I've got headaches, I've got the, there's kind of like this unlimited list of, you know, the things or, and a a lot of times it's like, they say they're very healthy, but I'm like, bro, you've got acne, you know, where is that? Like, I see white hairs, you got acne, you're 30 years old, you shouldn't have white hair. The fungus on your toenails, right? So, well, wait, what's that fungus on your toenails? That's immunodeficiency right there, right? Well, there That's, are some things. There are, there's a couple yeah. of other things here, too, that are worth mentioning. One is the age at which people go through menopause is a predictor of longevity. So women that go through menopause at a younger age have a shorter life expectancy, also higher incidence of, of dementia, right? So if you go through menopause later in life, that's a that's a good thing. Having higher testosterone levels for a longer period of time is a good thing. But the cells inside the testes that make testosterone, the Leydig cells, they're, they're programmed to burn out. Currently, they're programmed to burn out at some point in time. And so you're not gonna, you're not gonna have Leydig cells producing testosterone at age 80, right? I mean, producing some, you'll get some from your adrenal glands and things like that, but it's gonna be difficult to maintain optimal, you know, there's always an exception, but it's gonna be difficult to maintain optimal testosterone levels for most people that way. So the other thing that factors into this is mental health. You know, you talk about people that struggle with things. There's an awful lot of anxiety out there, right? There's an awful lot of depression. There's an awful lot of, I think, you know, they talk about mental health issues are 15 to 20% of the population. I think it's 95%. Because almost- I would agree with you there. That's so funny. I talk to under stress, they're anxious, they're worried, they're this, they're that, you know, they're, and- they don't really have a good stress management strategy. And, you know, a lot of people don't feel safe and they don't feel loved and their relationships aren't the way they want them to. I mean, there's a lot of, I call this the life energy circle. And I think this life energy circle is really critical to optimize. If you're really going to, you know, stay young for a long time, then, you know, in the book I have coming out is how to make a hundred to new 30. So if you're going to stay young for a long time, then you really have to have your mental health kind of dialed in too. Hundred percent. I think uh, mental health is one of the most pervasive issues in that that people deal with, and I I think that I mean I, I don't know about you. For example, you said you had depression, brain fog when when you were in your fifties. Do you think that that came suddenly, or you already had some kind of you had those issues before, but you just ignored them because you thought they were just normal. That's correct. I normalized them. I, I, as I look back when I got into my thirties and for the first time really felt good. I think I was done with all my medical school training, all my, you know, residency, internships, fellowships, all that sort of thing. And I sort of felt free from all that. I felt really good. And I was looking back on it and I thought, you know what? I think I was depressed for my entire 20 and I just normalized it. Right. And I think this is, this is another thing that that humans do is we normalize it. So we normalize the aging process. 
It's like, you know, you turn, you turn 35, it's like, well, yeah, you should see a couple gray hairs, right? Everybody's telling you this, your doctor's going to tell you this. And the whole society is normalizing this process. Well, you know, I, yeah, I put on five pounds, but hey, I'm 35, right? Or somebody says the right. same. I've got a dad bod. I've, I'm a dad. I've, so I got, I'm, a, yeah, I'm saying if somebody says that, right? You know, it's right. like, well, I've, yeah, I have some kids. I've got a dad bod. It's normal. <laughs> right. And so we normalize this process of decline and that, that really limits our ability. It's kind of like saying you're going broke, but you're normalizing. It's like, well, yeah, I have less money than I did before. I'm losing money now, but you know, it's, everybody's, well, of course you're going to lose money. You know, it's like, it's like you just normalize that you're going to go broke, but, but we do that with our health and nobody would do that with their finances. Right. So. It takes, it takes a right mindset, quite honestly, to understand that you're playing an exponential game, that we live in a time when you can actually have a massive impact on the aging process, really slow it down, probably even reverse it by the time you get to an age where it really matters. And, and I think it's really, you have to want it, right? It's like anything else, you have to want it. If you want to make a million dollars, you have to want to make a million dollars. It doesn't just happen. So it's the same kind of thing. If you want to be healthy, you got to want to be healthy. I think the first step, and this is kind of where it's very important to understand is that people, and this is the hardest part, I think, is people don't understand what is normal and, and, and what's optimal. Like they think a lot of people just think that they're healthy, right? There was somebody that was telling me that she doesn't, you know, she doesn't understand why I don't like to drink a lot or whatever, or, you know, she goes out like three times a night, a week or whatever. And she just wasn't understanding. And she had a serious medical condition. She didn't want to tell me what, but I'm like thinking you've got a serious, like you've got a medical condition. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm here, you know, I, I want to prevent these medical conditions. She just didn't connect the two that if you do X, Y, and Z, and you're going out late at night and you're drinking alcohol, that, that is in some way, I don't even know what the medical condition was, but I can tell you there probably was a connection, right? Yeah. Going out late at night and, and drinking alcohol. Now, that doesn't mean you can't do it, but you have to understand first that whatever you do, there's a connection between that and health, right? You should not have a disease. You should not have be, you shouldn't get headaches. You shouldn't have white air, hair until a much later age, right? You shouldn't be overweight. You shouldn't get out of breath easily. Like there's just all these things, but it's hard to know when you're in that situation. You shouldn't be in a bad mood almost ever, right? Like, I mean, maybe here and there for, you know, th there could be like big stresses in your life, but people should be quite resilient. And I think that we we normalize these things. We're just like, well, this is what, you know, it's normal and, and that's that. And that's kind of what I did for a while as well until you get to a certain point where you're just like, wait a second, this is not normal. This shouldn't be the case or I can do something about this. Yeah. And, and I think even if it is normal, the question you have to ask yourself is, is it what I want? Right. right. Do, I, do, I, do I want to not be able to ride my mountain bike or snowboard or keep up with my kids or go for a run if I want to go for a run? Right. So, and I'll tell you another mindset that I found to be incredibly helpful is I just had a birthday on February 28th, right? I was born in 1954. So chronologically, I just turned 69. And yet I wake up 27 every morning. And the reason I wake up 27 every morning is because it just changes my whole worldview. It's like, oh, I'm 27. 
Yeah, let's go do that. If I want to do that, sure, let's go do that. Want to start a new company? Want to start a new venture? Yeah, let's do that. It's when you're 27, you have your whole world ahead of you. And it's it's having that mindset is so, so, so powerful because it's like I compare myself to, I want to go run four miles. Okay, let's go run four miles. Well, I'm only 27. I should be able to do that. So you're mm-hmm. telling yourself, well, I'm 69. I shouldn't be able to. Then you're, you're, that's what you're going to believe. That's what's going to happen. So by claiming a younger age and holding yourself to that standard, I found that to be a very, very powerful tool. That, that could be a, a very interesting tool, but that, is only, that only comes later when you have the raw materials to actually do that. Meaning if your knees are actually hurting because you're 69, and, and they were, meaning they weren't hurting when you were 22, but now they're hurting when you're 69 and you're like, well, I'm 69. If you feel like you're 69 and your body's just breaking down in all different ways, then, then. Well, here's the thing. If you feel like you're 69 because your knees are hurting, then you're going to basically rationalize to yourself. I, I, I shouldn't run. I can't run. I, I can't do this. But if you say my knees are hurting and I'm 27, then you take a different approach. I'm only 27. So whatever my knee problem is, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to figure out how to rehab it. I'm going to figure out how to rebuild them. I'm going to figure out what to do. And you do that. And the next thing you know, you're out running again. Right. So right. Uh, it's really mindset is the massive driver here. But I, I think the real problem is like, let's say if people, a lot of people are overweight and they're not over, it's really a, a metabolic issue, a mitochondria issue, meaning they're not, they don't have enough energy, right? If, if they had enough energy to go for a run whenever they wanted, then they probably would do that. I, I feel like what ha- ends up happening is they're just like, oh, they get home, they just don't have enough energy and then they get lazy and then that's why they're not exercising enough. There's a, that's a good point you're making. I think there's a chicken and egg scenario here too, right? So I think a lot of people kind of say, well, I'm going to start to exercise. And then it's like, well, okay, I'll exercise four days a week. And what happens is the first day that they don't feel like exercising, it's like, well, I'm not today, right? And the problem with committing to three days a week, four days a week, five days a week, is you have to decide every day, am I, is today the day? And, and when you don't feel like exercising, then it's easier to say, well, I'm not going to exercise. And then guess what? The more you say that, the less you feel like exercising. And that's why we're big proponents of saying, if you're going to exercise, do, do something six days a week. I mean, seven right. days a week. Do something every single day of the week, not six days a week. Do something seven days a week. Because if you take the decision out of it, you will succeed. As soon as there's a decision to be made, the failure rate goes to 100%. So you want to remove the decision and just commit. I'm going to do something every day. So you set your sneakers next to the bed. I get up. What I do is I put my sneakers on, set a small goal. All I'm going to do today is put my sneakers on. Okay, well, I have my sneakers on. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do that. And so you start to trip yourself into it. And the next thing you know, 30 days into it, you can't live without exercise, right? Because you're feeling so much better. You're doing everything that you you know thought you couldn't do. So I think a lot of it becomes this idea that people have that they shouldn't feel that uncomfortable, right? Or if I don't feel like exercising, it's a bad time to exercise. And what I found is if I don't feel like exercising and I go exercise, I feel so much better. It's almost like the antidote for not feeling good, right? So it's quite wonderful. I get off a flight. Let's say I get off a flight and you know how you feel tired getting off a flight. I'll go jump on my elliptigo and go ride it for eight or nine miles. And when I get back, I feel like a new person. 
it's kind of like you blow out all that stuff, but I don't feel like exercising. I just know that if I do this, I'm going to feel so much better. So I think moving away from this concept of I'm only going to exercise if I feel like it, or if I feel like it's a good day to do it or something really sabotages people's success in all this. You have to commit seven days a week. I agree with that. I mean, I've basically committed to seven days a week of exercise. I just don't go a day without exercise. No such yeah. thing. Even even if I miss it once in the blue moon, I'll just I'll do some push ups. Like yeah. I gotta do something. You know, gotta do something, right? Gotta yeah, do I something. You gotta move. do some balance yeah. training, do some something, right? I mean, just something to make sure I'm getting something in. Run the stairs, go run it three times, you know, whatever it is. But right. and yeah. what I do is I, I build it in my day so that every like pretty much hard not to exercise. For example, if I go anywhere, I'll bike, you know, or if I'm on any kind of meeting generally, like not a podcast, because you can't do it on a podcast, but if I'm on a meeting, I'll go for a walk while I'm on the meeting. Yeah. Right. And, you know, so, and I, I told people in the company that they could do the same, right? If, if it's a meeting where you don't have to be by your computer, go for a walk while you're on the meeting, right? Yeah. You get some exercise. It's, it builds in exercise into the day naturally. So I think it's, you know, I don't think people realize a lot of people like they're into, you know, their skin looking nice or like a whole bunch of things that they want, but they don't realize that it's all interconnected, right? They, they might want to live longer. They might want to have more energy. They might want to have a better mood. They want to, you know, they want their skin to be better. They want their hair to look nicer. Guess what? This is all related to health, right? And so there's all these kinds of things. They want to have less pain, right? There's all these kinds of things that people don't necessarily relate. They think, oh, my headaches, that's just because my hormones or whatever it is, right? I'm, I have my period or I have this or that. They, people will give all these kinds of excuses. And, and when it comes to something like, like longevity, I, I think the concept of being able to live longer, you know, regular people don't really have that concept so much, right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think, I think longevity is kind of an abstract term, right? Because, you know, what does it actually mean? And what we're talking about is not just living a long time, right? We have an aspiration to live young for a long time. And so, you know, if we can be, if we can function like we're 30 when we're 100, that's what we're down for. You know, people talk about, I want to live to 150, 180, 300, all these, I want to 120. Every picture I ever saw of anybody that was 100 years old or 120 isn't exactly what I'm going for. So really for us, it's more about being youthful right? That's for me, right. that's a better term than longevity because everybody knows what it is to be young. And if we can maintain youthfulness, right? That's why I wake up 27 every day. If you can maintain youthfulness in a youthful mindset where you're, you know, you continue to ask questions, you continue to learn, you continue to grow, you try new things. And you realize that each decade of your life, chronological decade, you're going to have to do things differently because there is a process going on that will require different approaches, right? So what it takes to get in shape when you're 35 is different than what it's going to take when you're 65, right? There'll be different things you'll be focusing on. And so this keeping this flexible mindset, staying young mentally, and then really focusing on being young and letting that carry you forward, I think that's really a, a much better path. So... What do you think the optimal testosterone number should be? Well, it's a whole range that can be optimal, right? I mean, different people feel differently at different 
at different ranges, but it's important to not just look at total testosterone. You know, we see that some people feel great at 600. Some people feel don't feel good until it's 1200 for total testosterone. But part of that is related to what the free testosterone is because most of the testosterone is riding around on, on a brain called sex hormone binding globulin where, you know, the testosterone is bound up. So it's the free testosterone, just like it's the free T3 that's actually doing the business. And so you- What do you recommend for a free testosterone number? Yeah, we like it around 20, 22, 23, somewhere in there. What's the upper bound that that you would want? With the labs that we're using, the upper is maybe around 30, but- If it's higher, you would say to get it down then? I mean, if you're not using testosterone to boost it, then I would say, you know, that's your body's set point, right? But if it's, but if you're using testosterone, again, it's economy of balance. You don't want to be pushing on that mTOR side of the equation as hard as you can, Mm -hmm. right? So we like things that are a little bit more, you know, on the upper end of the middle of the road, if you will. So for me, for example, I, I tested my free testosterone. I'll pull up my numbers here. But I tested my free testosterone and it was the first time I tested it, it was 7.4 out of until it, until 25, pretty much. Okay. Yeah, that's low. Yeah. So it's 8.7 to 25. It, it was kind of like a normal range, a typical lab core test. So I, I'm, you know, 2018, my free testosterone was 7.4. And then I recently did it test February 22nd and it went to 84. Uh, no testosterone, no uh, drugs or anything like that. No exogenous testosterone. Anything like that. My, my testosterone itself went up quite a lot too, but the free testosterone went up even more. I think when it was 84, I think one of the reasons why it went to 84 is because I started taking a supplement to lower my estradiol, which also lowered my SHBA, HBG, and that increased my free testosterone. Okay. And so, so I stopped were... taking that. Right. So this, this is one thing that happens with testosterone replacement is, <clears throat> you know, testosterone is actually the parent molecule to estrogen. And so there's an enzyme that converts testosterone to estrogen called aromatase, and you can inhibit aromatase with different supplements and a medication called anastrozole. And so that's one strategy to raise testosterone is to simply block some of its conversion to estrogen. We find that different men convert at different rates. This is also somewhat genetically determined, convert testosterone to estrogen at different rates. So some men convert a lot of testosterone to estrogen and others convert very little. Um, If you were one that was prone to convert a fair amount into estrogen and you block that pathway, that would definitely boost your testosterone and free testosterone. But really what's important in a scenario like this is not, it is important if you're going to 84, you're probably outside where you want to be. I'll just say that. But what's really important with hormones and the thing that's overlooked a lot is it's not just about testosterone and estradiol levels or DHT levels or sexual hormone binding globulin levels. It has to do with the metabolites of these hormones. Because it's the metabolites, when you go from testosterone to estradiol, from estradiol into 2-hydroxy or 4-hydroxy or 16-hydroxy estrone, and then you go out through the methylation pattern, it's really those metabolites that can increase your risk for either breast cancer, prostate cancer, endometrial cancer. And you really want to know where those are, male or female. 
So if those aren't being tested, people, a lot of people are missing the boat because they're not testing the hormone metabolites. And that's how you really keep yourself safe. You had a bunch of different issues, weight gain, depression, brain fog, you know, a bunch of different issues. Like, basically like really feeling incredibly tired all the time, you know, I'm feeling tired all the time. And you went to doctors and they were basically treating this individually. You're like, oh, you got depression, take an SSRI. You know, the other stuff, you got weight gain. Well, you're just a typical American. <laughs> you know, like, welcome to the real world. You're just getting old, right? Um, it's pretty much what I heard, yeah. Yeah, it's like any kind of other issue. Well, you're just getting old. Well, depression, take an SSRI. Obviously, they're not actually looking at your whole body. And, and understanding that there's reasons why your body is malfunctioning, why it's going down and, and just saying aging is not the answer now. So it's, you know, basically what you started doing is you looked at a bunch of your lab tests, you started tracking lab tests, you started looking at certain genetics to see, you know, what, what are your genetic weaknesses? And based on those things, you were able to figure out and also take a bunch of actions that got rid of all those issues. And I assume that you feel much better, significantly better now than you did at your, in your forties. Would, would that oh, be that, a true statement? Yeah, no, that's, that's true. I mean, I can do anything I want, right? I mean, if you want to go run four miles, let's go do it. I just was snowboarding at 12,000 feet. I go mountain. How would you compare your state now to when you were, for example, I don't know, like at what age would you compare your state to at right now? 20s uh, or yeah no i'm i i feel like i'm functioning like somebody in their 30s for sure right 30s so, okay mm -hmm. yeah no I, and I, I think that's in every way yeah and, you know my goal is to be 30 at 100 functioning like i'm 30 i i feel like you know just as you lo were looking at your numbers there you know health is dynamic it shifts around so you know it's it's constant vigilance so to speak but i feel i feel super grateful for how terrific i feel you know but it but it's it's because I'm incredibly proactive about it, right? So, right. And I assume that's also different for each metric. For example, you mentioned you were depressed in your 20s. That, you know, the, so right now you probably feel better in terms of your mental state just your, than your 20s. You are healthier now in certain ways than you were in your 20s. Whereas it could be in some other ways, you know, maybe you would compare it to your 40s or whatnot. But, you know, and these things tend to get worse a lot of times as you get older, right? Yeah, I would say mental health for me has gotten so much better. I mean, learning how to meditate has really been a game changer for me. And then really developing some spiritual practices, feeling connected to something bigger, you know, working on relationships, a lot of deep dives on my, you know, psyche. You know, we all tend to run a gauntlet when we come out of our childhoods, right? And we end up spending our lives living in a reaction to what we experienced there, sort of the traumas that we experienced. And I think being able to dive in and actually unravel those knots and solve those problems and heal those wounds to where we can do what I call, really, the aspiration is to live your unencumbered life where you're actually able to bring all your gifts forward and you're not living in reaction or on tilt to something that happened to you in the past, right? So I've done a lot of that work as well. And I think that's very freeing. And you feel that in your biology. You know, when you're not walking around angry all the time or, you know, resenting all the time or, you know, depressed all the time or frustrated all the time. I mean, your biology loves that, right? So. 
you think, uh, I mean, you could just say skip if you'd like, but have you ever done psychedelics? Has, has that been part of any? Yeah, uh, I've, a, a I've done some psychedelics. I've, I've done some psychedelics as part of the journey as well. So At what so age? At 68. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you know, you people, it's so funny because sometimes I tell people I, I, you know, I take psychedelics and they think of it like, oh, you know, you're at a rave and you take some psychedelics when you're in your 20s or whatever it is. It's a completely different experience in the way that I do that, right? Yeah, it's a question that you're asking, right? I mean, if you're if you're looking to have a good time, that's one question, but that's not why I've done them. It's been because I've been asking a question and being able to go into some of these more profound states, 5-MeO, DMT, and things like that, you know, you can, you can go back and you can heal things. And there's a lot of data on this now. It's being studied extensively at Hopkins and other places on the ability of this to really crack the code for people in terms of understanding their sense of purpose, going back and healing things. And I've had some profound experiences that I wouldn't trade for anything based on those experiences that I had, because it really helped me put things in perspective and understand that actually things are okay and and I'm I'm headed in the right direction. So I think I think psychedelics can be profound. I know they got, I mean I grew up in the sixties, right? So I was there when, when all that stuff was going on. And but you didn't take so that. Was, you didn't join you didn't take part of no, that. No, I I was no, I, w I wasn't really part of that culture at that point in time. But but I just remember all the backlash, right? And all everything that came down around it all. And I think, you know, I think now people are sort of coming to their senses about the power of these to reprogram the brain. And actually, here's a takeaway for the audience. I think that all of health, quite honestly, boils down to brain reprogramming and optimal programming. Because when you, you know, it's what you believe that holds you back, right? We all know that we're, we're the ones that hold ourselves back. So that's the, based on your belief system. If you can go in and reprogram your brain to want to exercise, to want to eat healthy, to get rid of these things that are sabotaging you, like I'm drinking to get rid of this pain that happened when I was a kid and blah, blah, blah. I mean, if you can reprogram that and reprogram your brain into optimal function, and I think psychedelics can play a role there. I think lots of different forms of therapy can play a role there too. Um, you know, that's a beautiful thing. And then you get to be your unencumbered self. Now it's like, oh, I'm free of all that stuff I was carrying around. I mean, that translates into your ability to be healthy for years and decades to come. So, all right. So... We're, we've come to the end of the interview and I just wanted cool. to ask you, you know, tell people where you can, where they can find you, talk about your book maybe a bit and, you know, anything else you wanted to mention? Sure. So if people are interested to learn more about what we're doing, you can go to gladandlongevity.com. We work with people to literally help them turn back the clock. We have lots of different programs that people can participate in if they're Depends on what question they're asking, like, how old am I? We can do a number of things to give you insight into that or fix my shoulder. We can do that. We do a lot of regenerative things, rejuvenation things, and, and uh, you'll see some of that on the website. So that's all there. And the book I've been working on, which is going to be coming out shortly, is 100 is the New 30, how playing the symphony of longevity, longevity will enable us to live young for a lifetime. And that's really what it's about for me is living young for a lifetime. And we're really empowered by three questions. The first one is how good can you be? And that's a global question, right? How good can your life be? How unencumbered, how, how happy, how relationally replete, and then how healthy and, and well can you be? 
And the second one is, how do we make 100 to new 30? And the third question is, how do we live well beyond 120? Can we crack the Hayflick limit and actually live really well and be vibrant for a long period of time? So those are the three questions that we're focused on. And our passion is really cracking the code on aging because in doing so, so much suffering occurs for people and their families and themselves because of the decline and the the things that they lose as they're aging. So I want to change that trajectory for mankind. That's really our biggest focus. And then we also have a podcast called the Glad and Longevity Podcast. It started out as Living Beyond 120. And then the co-host I was working with decided he wanted to go do something else. So we rebranded as Glad and Longevity, but all the podcasts are there. And we probably have close to 200 podcasts and we have an age hackers element to that too, with some bonus material that we've added recently. But if you want to go to the Glad and Longevity Podcast.com, we have tons of really fascinating topics. And if you're interested in this field of longevity and, and staying young for a long time, there's a lot of great stuff there. So those would be all things I might suggest for folks. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate oh, Joe, it. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure chatting with you. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, likewise. Awesome. Have a great day. 67% of listeners aren't following the show, so please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, but also investing in yourself and your health journey, all while helping to keep us ad-free.